Thank you for choosing to listen to this episode today. Before we begin, I just wanted to let you know that recently, Talks Talk changed its name to Talks Now. So during this episode, at multiple points, you'll hear us refer to Talks Talk and the website Talks Talk. But you can check out all that great content at Talks Now, T O X N O W dot O R G, and follow us at our Twitter feed at Talks Now. So same great people, same great content, just a slightly different name. Thanks for listening. We'll continue with the episode now. Hello, and welcome to another exciting edition of Talks Talk, a toxicology podcast from the UMass Division of Toxicology and Department of Emergency Medicine. I'm your host, Matt Zuckerman, uh, back from our holiday hiatus. In this episode, um, we're going to be talking about uh, a lethal gas that's widely available, largely untraceable, and uh, really isn't talked about much. Um, so it's definitely definitely a fascinating case, um, really a case where the dose does make the poison. And uh, for this uh, episode, we're going to be joined by Nick Connors from the New York City Poison Control Center, uh, who uh, saw such a case and uh, is uh, joining us today to talk about it. But before we get to that... Um, I wanted to remind uh, those of our listeners that are listening that the Rhode Island Department of Health and Medical Examiner's Office um, have started reporting another spike in overdose deaths in Rhode Island, effectively uh, 22 deaths in a period uh, that last year would have had only 11 deaths. And um, some of these deaths are suspicious uh, because in their preliminary testing, they are positive for fentanyl and fentanyl compounds. Um, and so this could very well be a resurgence of some of the acetyl fentanyl that killed so many in Rhode Island and Pennsylvania last year. And so we're going to be following this story, uh, bringing you more info soon, both on the podcast and on our uh, Twitter feed at Talks Talk and uh, hopefully our Facebook page. Uh, but I just wanted to let those of you know that are in uh, the New England and surrounding area that maybe you should consider um, acetyl fentanyl in some of your opioid overdose cases, especially those cases that um, maybe seem to be a heavier hit, maybe using higher potency opioids, maybe needing more naloxone um, than typical, um, or just if you're seeing a user who seems to say that something is changed about the supply or something is, is going on. It's really early testing by folks on the ground and clinician and others that can help identify um, such public health threats. Um, and if you do, um, consider doing some additional testing and then alert your um, Department of Public Health. But just keep your um, eyes out for, um, for possibly some opioid deaths, and we'll continue to follow this. Without any further delay, uh, uh, here's our conversation with Nick. Hey Matt, how are you? Oh, I'm doing well. I'm doing well. Now, Nick, you are a you're an up and coming fellow with the New York uh, Medical Toxicology Fellowship. I wanted to touch base because I heard you had um, a bit of an unusual case. Yeah, we had a call where a hospital called with a gentleman who had presented in cardiac arrest, and he had been found in his apartment with a bag over his head and a flexible tube connecting it to a tank of compressed air. They got there, they found him in cardiac arrest, uh, started their ACLS protocol, did get a return of circulation, and brought him into the uh, emergency room. He did have uh, pulseless VTAC again in the ER, 
That's incredible. You guys had been uh, great because I think it had been uh, – you brought this case up at the uh, ACMT, the American College of Medical Toxicology case conference. It's bizarre in a way, and it seems like it stumped a number of people in terms of what could be going on, what could what could uh, be causing the problems. At the same time, it's also incredibly obvious. Yeah, it, it was interesting. We kind of – for the sake of education for that case conference, we kind of left it as an unknown, which is always fun to do when you, you get toxicologists on the phone and you just say, this is what happened, what, what do you think caused it? I was <laughs> beneficial enough at the time to – have the EMS report saying that they did find him with... Okay, I've cut it off right here um, because this is about where Nick tells us uh, what the what the compressed gas was that the guy was breathing in. Um, but this is a great opportunity because this is exactly what would happen if you were at one of our UMass case conferences or really case conferences in most places is um, uh, very often, I think, in toxicology, people get the impression that it's just um, finding some bottles or doing some testing and then start Starting with the agent, but if you really want to get toxicologists excited, then you just put it up on the board. You know, um, a man found in apartment with bag on head attached to canister of compressed gas um, uh, found, uh, you know, in a lethal arrhythmia. Um, go and and then go through a differential. And so I want you to ask yourselves, what do you think this man was breathing? And you might just say, well, it could be anything, but that's not that's not actually the case because there are a lot of things uh, that can cause this presentation. But then how many of those things could EMS actually get the guy back? Um, a lot of poisons would kill him uh, pretty quickly and then wouldn't be able to get him back. So this is something where they were able to get him back and uh, and then just go from there. And I find that that makes most poisonings much more interesting um, because that way, um, first of all, that's how medicine works. And second of all, that way, not only are you able to diagnose and treat this one particular agent, but you've thought about 12 other agents. And, and so it really, that's how a, a toxicologist kind of trains and, and gets better and better at this. So ask yourself if you want, you could pause it and try to figure out what this gas is before we move on. And we, and we sort of give away the mystery from the, uh, from the classic kind of locked door caper. I was <laughs> beneficial enough at the time to ha- have the the EMS report saying that they did find him with helium. But this is actually kind of a trend we're seeing. Here in New York, there was um, local news covering two DJs who provided kind of life counseling. And several weeks before uh, this patient was called into the poison center, they had committed suicide through this very same method where they filled up plastic bags, put them over their heads and, and filled the, uh, or, and had tubes running to helium tanks. It goes back a, a bit farther than that, though. The Final Exit Network, which is a group kind of devoted to people's self-determination and self-deliverance, as they call it, generally for kind of the terminally ill, promotes this method of helium asphyxiation with a plastic bag um, as a way that's generally painless um, and fairly rapid. Yeah, and actually, just to, just to clarify, so that is the group, the Final Exit Network and the Final Exit Publication are very much involved with self-determination. Um, for those unfamiliar with what we're talking about, it's effectively a, a group that helps people or gives them information on how to commit suicide. So it's effectively, I mean, Unofficially, you might call it a suicide network, but absolutely, they are they are um, organized to to help people determine the way that they end their life. And um, 
and uh, and so so it's being uh, propagated a bit through the final exit network. That's totally totally correct. So you know, on their websites now, uh, this helium asphyxiation method is one of the main ways they they promote, um, and they actually sell a kit basically, which is it's you know basically just a plastic bag of sorts connected by. Uh, tubing, and you can go buy the helium pretty much at any party store. You know, these are things that are sold for about $50. You can get them online. I think the the most common use of these is for helium balloons for parties and such, but they're very common. They're not regulated at all, and they're fairly easy to obtain. Okay, and now just to – so some people hearing this might say, well, why why would you use – Helium. I mean, is this is like when is this like when somebody gets exposed to carbon monoxide or another poisonous gas? So there's some. There's not a lot of data on this, but there was this um, Canadian researcher um, who actually attended two of the uh, the suicides by this method, who actually chronicled what happened during the events, and he documented that you know that these uh, it was two women basically filled the bags with helium above their head, then put it over their heads. And he reports that within 10 and 12 seconds, they had lost consciousness and says that they had lost their vital signs within, you know, two to five minutes. So is that that's the case report by Ogden? It is, yeah. Yeah, and Ogden actually, yeah, Ogden has a, has a couple of case reports um, discussing this. Um, and I have to say it's, it's got to be difficult to research. Most of these articles are from the forensics literature. I think there's also a paper in the ethics literature, and we'll put a link to some of those papers online. Um, but had to sort of sign a release, and it's tricky to sort of to to observe something mm-hmm. um, that um, is so is so controversial. But but yeah. in terms of its distinction, a little bit though, it seems like really what they're going for. Even though we say uh, you know death uh, from from the helium bag, it's really um, Hypoxia. It's really asphyxiation by by driving out all the oxygen. Yeah. So some of the benefits here are that people aren't rebreathing carbon dioxide, so their chemoreceptors aren't being stimulated to to breathe quicker, and, and you get that kind of panicky feeling. You know, I think that we probably all felt when we we're under the water a little bit too long. That seems like a fairly fairly terrible way to die. With the helium. You know, it's just an inert gas that's taking the place of oxygen. And what he describes in in these observations of these suicides, um, which he kind of explains a little bit, this research was done up in Canada where he reports at least that it's not illegal to observe someone's suicide, um, that the these women were both perfectly calm. They had no signs of struggle or anything that would indicate they were in any real discomfort and that they just kind of took, I would say, seconds of deep breaths and then they had lost consciousness and their vital signs kind of tapered down. And in some of the other forensic literature, I think they've talked about how people typically lose consciousness within about 30 seconds and then usually arrest, it looks like, within within a few minutes. Yeah, yeah, it seems very quick, which is interesting. And then I guess to talk about the forensic literature a little bit, the biggest issue there is kind of detecting it because it's actually very difficult to detect their exposure to helium. Um, There was one study where they actually have to remove the gas from the lungs, so they have to kind of syringe it out or remove it 
after the lungs are kind of sectioned out during autopsy and then analyze it through GCMS, but they have to do it in a special way because helium is usually the carrier gas. So you have to substitute a different one. So you really have to be thinking that this is helium to be testing for it. Yeah, that's, I mean, that's an excellent, excellent point. So, right. So typically to do GCMS, you need some sort of gas to carry the sample. And so you're always adding something to it. And typically you're adding helium. So if you get that helium peak, you're not necessarily going to know that that's not the helium that you added. You're probably going to ignore it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so in the end, these depths are very hard to determine. You know, should, Assuming someone has kind of cleaned up the, the evidence, it, it would be very hard to, to find this deceased body and, and determine that it was helium without knowing that there was a tank and, and this procedure used. I mean, I can see why it's attractive. And actually, that some of the – and this is just for people that are listening or that are worried that we're telling people how to commit suicide. This is a well-publicized method that is in mm-hmm. one of the most highly read and purchased manuals on suicide. Um, I actually heard about it through a frontline documentary um, that was on last year, uh, The Suicide Plan, that kind of talks about it and, and was kind of shocked when I heard about it. So if you're if so people that are looking for suicide, this is going to be one of the first things you hit. But my, my biggest concern as a, as a medical toxicologist and as an ED doc is that um, I had no idea that people were doing this. And if you mm-hmm. don't have that level of suspicion, you're not necessarily going to be able to diagnose it. So, so just to clarify for some people, this hopefully isn't encouraging anyone to attempt it, but we have to talk about why it's become so attractive to groups like Final Exit Network. And Dignitas in Europe has also been known to use this method um, more and more frequently. Uh, in terms of um, assisted suicide. And and there was a well-publicized case back in 2007 um, that is mentioned in the, that's mentioned in the Frontline documentary, uh, Jana Van Voorhees, who, who had two uh, sort of exit navigators that flew to her home in Phoenix and helped her do this. And then exactly as you say, sort of cleaned up the equipment. And if the family hadn't have noticed a suspicious phone call and alerted the police and that started the investigation, uh, it's unclear that uh, it ever would have been discovered. Yeah, it's interesting. This has kind of been going on for some time, and I, you know, I was, you know, just like you, I hadn't really heard about this. I mostly heard about this through the the news report of those uh, DJ's deaths over the summer here in New York. But looking back into the research, back in 1993, um, there's a report in the New, uh, New England Journal about kind of an increase in suicide by asphyxiation after the final exit kind of first put out there their information. And then there are kind of studies really from around the globe. I've seen studies in Australia, Sweden, and then several from the United States where there's, there's been kind of an uptake in cases due to asphyxiation. I guess the big limitations in that is we, we always wonder if, you know, there's many more and these are just the ones that we end up finding out about and determining, uh, you know, helium as uh, used as a, uh, the actual method. That's a very good point, and I think that's the biggest concern. I think we always have to ask ourselves whether or not the U.S. is an appropriate um, sort of uh, place for something to happen, and we have a lot of legislation against suicide, and we have a lot of emphasis on these groups. 
So if anything, and most of the evidence is coming from countries that have legalized it and so sort of allowed it to come into the sunshine and allowed research to be done about it. So if anything, I would assume that we have more, not less, of this than we know about. And most of the articles that I've seen are all on the forensics literature, which is not typically literature that I read um, that much as an EM physician. I'm usually focusing on on the living people. And so I feel like we're sort of missing the boat. The history of the technique is kind of interesting, too, because if you look at it, I mean, sort of hanging yourself or putting a bag over your head is, is an old, old method. The idea of adding helium to it from the final exit network seems like, um, I, think they said in the, I think they said in the book or in the research that it's from the new tech group. So final exit actually has an R&D chapter that tries to figure out new methods. And I think they said they literally wanted a method that was swift, painless, foolproof, inexpensive, non-disfiguring, because you want to have, you know, an open casket, simple, and, and didn't leave any indication that the death was unnatural. And, and as opposed to, you know, in Oregon or, or other um, uh, places where uh, oftentimes legalized and sanctioned assisted suicide occurs with the use of prescription drugs, as you've already pointed out, this is available in every party store. Yeah, and I guess to go back to your uh, point a few minutes ago, why not use carbon monoxide or something like that, that is very easily determined by a, a medical examiner. Um, so if someone's not in an area that, you know, where there's a leak of some kind or a fire or something that would give you carbon monoxide, that would immediately bring up the suspicion for someone committing suicide. And just for, for listeners who want the basic physiology, so essentially normally in air, it's almost all, almost all nitrogen, but mm-hmm. 21% oxygen, that's what we always say, anyone who's doing math. And then usually OSHA says that you're deficient at 19.5%. Usually you're going to have some increase um, in your breathing and pulse at 12 to 16%. You're going to feel really tired at 10 to 14%. We're effectively um, sort of simulating altitude um, uh, sort of oxygen deprivation in a way. So you keep dropping your oxygen. And then usually less than 6%, and you're going to start having convulsions and asystole. And so you're really driving out all of the air and just breathing in helium. There was one case, I think it might have been one of the Ogden papers, where somebody lingered for a number of minutes, but they uh, they think that there might have been a leak in the bag and some air might have gotten in. If you're present for one of these, I guess what's going to happen is they're going to sound like chipmunks. Yeah, I I assume if they're, you know, they're saying anything and and I guess in both of the cases that Ogden reported where he was sitting there the women were kind of I I don't know if they were saying their goodbyes or or something like that but they were talking and that must be very strange yeah and then uh, I think it mentioned somewhere that you might see ligature marks around the neck or you might see if they're breathing in a bag it typically might get some humidity or moisture in the in the hair but but my understanding is that because helium is is lighter than air, you don't actually necessarily need a tight seal for these ligature marks to. Yeah, that makes sense. And you know, it, from these compressed air containers, I can imagine that it would just fill up the whole thing. So it's it's an interesting story. Your your patient did not um, did not do so well. Yeah, they ended up getting a return of circulation. He got uh, you know a hypothermia protocol to see, you know, if there was going to be any recovery of brain function. But eventually, yeah, he did pass. Yeah, it, it does bring up an interesting question, you know, what do we do? There's no real treatment here. Um, it's, I, I would think it's mostly prevention, um, if anything. Um, but this is, you know, it's very a very simple technique with very accessible items. So it would be hard. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I mean, 
it's it's available everywhere and it's unrestricted and yeah the treatment i think is is exactly as you point out is probably well i guess it's it should be on a tox t-shirt but supportive care and um and i guess the biggest thing also would just be recognizing it because if there is a failed attempt you would hate to miss that failed attempt and have the person go out and and be successful or i guess honestly anyone who's listening who thinks that they know someone who might be at risk for this if they purchase some helium you might want to um check things out. And then in the in the Phoenix case in 2007, they ultimately ended up prosecuting sort of the final exit um navigators, I guess is what they're called, uh who who assisted with the case. And in that case, they actually had a sting operation where they invited them out and they had a fake a fake client wow. sort of talk about it. And and anyone who's ever seen someone undergoing sort of brain damage or hypoxia will see sometimes decorticate or decerebrate movements. And and as a part of that sting, the navigators did say that if you held your arms up, they would hold them down to prevent you from ripping the bag because they interpreted that as non-purposeful activity. And if you ripped the bag, you could allow oxygen in and then survive with permanent brain damage. Well, the, the court sort of interpreted that as um, as preventing someone from stopping it. And so they interpreted it as going from assisting someone or observing a suicide to actually, you know, partaking in a death. But um, wow. it's a very it's a very unusual area. Um, anyone listening, I highly recommend checking out that Frontline documentary. And um, and I think anyone should be just anyone who is exposed to people who may or may not commit suicide, checking out some of the Final Exit Network um, uh, information. Yeah, it's definitely interesting to to make yourself aware of. I, and I, yeah, I had no idea that this was really as prevalent or as as growing. Um, a trend as it is. No, absolutely. And then from a tox perspective, for those of you that are studying that, just you know, be aware. Really, any sort of inert gas that can displace um, oxygen can do this. There have been cases of death from uh, argon, from nitrogen. Uh, Ed Boyer has a favorite case of somebody dying from carbon dioxide asphyxiation from uh, sublimated dry ice. And um, there's even a really, I think there's a tragic case in Japan of of, a, of somebody, a young man, maybe alcohol was involved, crawling into an, an oversized helium balloon that was sort of an advertising balloon on like a car lot or something and crawling inside and essentially the same thing. He immediately asphyxiated and died. When I was at NAC this year, I, 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 it was just very interesting that my poster was right across from uh, Lee Cantrell's who reported data from the San Diego medical examiner's office, and helium was actually the second most common non-pharmaceutical suicide in San Diego over the last 12 years, um, which was just interesting to see. It was helium after carbon monoxide, and that was also from the ME. So I think, you know, we're not seeing many of these from the clinical side as much as from the forensic side. Absolutely, yeah. So I would encourage people to reach across the aisle. I've had a good, good conversation, spoke with forensic toxicologists and with medical examiners. Um, and I think that um, more communication is going to be helpful in terms of finding out what's going on. Um, it's a, just a fascinating case. And um, I'm, I really want to thank you for both bringing that up at your conferences and then for coming on the show today to talk about it. This is kind of a uh, possibly an increasing trend that's likely underreported. I think those are pretty much the take-homes. Yeah, it's an incredibly creepy topic that Makes yeah. me kind of gives me the shivers whenever I go into a party store now. So thank you, <laughs> thank you. I really appreciate it. Nick, I want to thank you for coming on the show today. Absolutely, thank you, Matt. I, uh, that was actually a lot of fun.
Well, that's it for another uh, edition of Talks Talk. I want to thank you for joining me. I'm Matt Zuckerman. And uh, if you like what you hear, if you want to send some feedback or suggestions for future episodes, you can check us out on the web at TalksTalk.org. That's T-O-X-T-A-L-K dot O-R-G. Or our Twitter feed at TalksTalk or our Facebook page. I want to remind you that Talks Talk is a production of the University of Massachusetts Division of Toxicology and Department of Emergency Medicine. I'm Matt Zuckerman, signing off.